0: The Star of Gettysburg, A Story of Southern High Tide, by Joseph A. altsheller Volume 5 in the Civil War series. Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com. Read by John Verzes. Chapter 9, Chancellorsville, Part 2. Harry was moved at the fall of this man, although he had never really liked him, but he went on and rejoined his general. Colonel Talbot was right. Jackson was still intent upon pressing the attack. Night and darkness were now nothing to him. He meant to achieve Hooker's ruin. Harry always believed afterward that he felt the shadow of the great tragedy soon to come. The roar of the cannon had died down but from every direction came the firing of scattered riflemen, skirmishers, and pickets. They buzzed like angry bees, and no man on the front of either army was safe from their sting. But all through the wilderness, along the line of Jackson's Charge, the dead and wounded lay. Here and there, clumps of fallen and dead wood of the winter before, set on fire by the shells, were burning slowly. The smoke from so much firing drifted in vast banks of vapor through the forest. The air was filled with bitter odors. Harry felt a sensation of awe and terror, not terror inspired by man, but of the unknown or uncontrolled forces that drive men to meet one another in such deadly combat. Now night did not suffice to stop the titanic struggle. He saw all around him the regiments ready for a new attack, and he plainly heard in front of him the thud of axes as the northern men cut down trees for their defense. Now and then stray moonbeams, penetrating the forest and the smoke, fell over them like disks of burnished silver, but faded quickly. The firing of the skirmishers increased. Twigs and leaves cut off by the bullets fell in little showers to the earth. Harry, on horseback now, saw an impatient look pass over the General's face. The intrepid fighter, A.P. Hill, was coming up fast, but not fast enough for Stonewall Jackson. He turned and rode back toward him, careless of the danger from the northern skirmishers, who might at any moment see him. "'General,' said one of his staff in protest, "'don't expose yourself so much.' "'There is no danger,' said the General quickly. "'The enemy is routed, and we must push him hard. "'Hurry to General Hill, and tell him to press forward.' "'The little group of men, Jackson and his staff, rode on. "'It was very dark where they were, in the shade of the stunted forest. "'No moonlight reached them there. "'Jackson paused, listening to the rising fire of the skirmishers. "'A rifle suddenly flashed in the thickets before them. "'Northern troops, lost in the bush and the darkness, were coming directly their way. Jackson turned, and followed by his staff, rode toward his own lines. The men of a North Carolina regiment, dimly seeing a group of horsemen coming down upon them, thought they were about to be attacked, and an officer gave an order to fire. He was obeyed at once, and the most costly volley fired by Southern troops in the whole war sent the deadly bullets whistling into Jackson's group. Officers and horses fell, shot down by their own men. Jackson was struck in the right hand and received two bullets in his left arm. One cut an artery, and another shattered the bone near the shoulder. The reins dropped from his hands, and his horse, the famous Little Sorrel, broke violently away, rushing through the woods toward the northern lines. A branch struck Jackson in the face, and he reeled in the saddle. But with a violent effort, he righted himself, "'seized the bridle in his stricken right hand "'and turned back his frightened horse. "'Harry sat still in his saddle, "'petrified with horror. "'Then he urged forward his horse "'and tried to reach his general. "'But another aide, Captain Wilburn, "'was before him. "'Wilburn seized the reins of little Sorrel, "'and then Harry felt the thrill of horror again "'as he saw Jackson reel forward and fall. "'But he was caught in the arms "'of the faithful Wilburn.' They laid Jackson on the ground, and a courier was sent in haste for his personal physician, Dr. McGuire. Harry sprang down, and, abandoning his horse, which he never saw again, knelt down beside his general. Wilborne, with a penknife, was cutting the sleeve from the shattered arm. The whole battle passed away for Harry. Death was in his heart at that moment. When he looked at the white, drawn face of Jackson and his shattered arm... He had no hope then, nor did he ever have any afterwards, save for a few moments. The paladin of the Confederacy was gone, shot down in the dark by his own men. General Hill, who had also been in great danger from the bullets of the North Carolinians, galloped up, sprang from his horse, and helped to bind up the shattered arm. "'Are you much hurt, General?' he asked, his face distorted with grief and alarm. "'I fear so.' was the reply, in a weak voice, and I have suffered all my wounds from my own men. I think my right arm is broken. Harry remained motionless. He saw Dalton by his side, and he also saw tears on his face. Jackson closed his eyes and uttered no word of complaint, although it was obvious that he was suffering terribly. General Hill felt his pulse. He was rapidly growing weaker. Harry was so stunned that he would not have known what to do, even had not senior officers been present. When his pulse began to beat again, he remained silent, waiting upon his superiors. But Harry was now alert and watchful again. He heard the heavy firing of the skirmishers on the right, on the left, and in front, and through the darkness he saw the flashes of flame. The little group around the fallen man was detached from the army, and the enemy might come upon them at any moment. Even as he looked, two Union skirmishers came through the thicket, and, pausing, their rifles in the hollows of their arms, looked intently at the shadowy figures before them, trying to discern who and what they were. It was General Hill who acted promptly. Turning to Harry and Dalton, he said in a low tone, "'Take charge of those men.' The two young lieutenants, with leveled pistols, instantly sprang forward and seized the soldiers before they had time to resist. They were given to orderlies and sent to the rear. Harry and Dalton returned to the side of their fallen general. While all stood there trying to decide what to do, an aide, who had gone down the road, reported that a battery of northern artillery was unlimbering just before them. "'Then we must take the general away at once,' said Hill." Hill lifted in his arms the great leader, who was now almost too weak to speak, although he opened his eyes once, and as ever, thoughtful of his troops and the cause for which he fought, said, Tell them it's only a wounded Confederate soldier whom you are carrying. Then he closed his eyes again, and lay heavy and inert in Hill's arms. Hill held him on his feet, and the young staff officers, now crowding around, supported him. Thus aided, he walked among the trees until they came to the road. It was as dark as ever, save for the flash of the firing, which went on continuously, to right, to left, and in front, mingled now with the sinister rumble of cannon. Harry, helping to support Jackson, and overwhelmed with grief, felt as if the end of the world had come. The darkness, The flash of the rifles, the mutter of cannon, the blaze of gunpowder, the fierce shouts that rose now and then in the thickets, foul odors made him think that they had truly reached the infernal regions. The lieutenant, who saw the battery unlimbering, had not been deceived by his imagination. Just as they entered the road, it fired a terrible volley of grape and shrapnel. Luckily, in the darkness, it fired high, and the little southern group, heard the deadly sleet crashing in the bushes and boughs over their heads. The devoted young staff officers instantly laid Jackson down in the road, and sheltering him with their own bodies as they lay beside him, remained perfectly still while the awful rain of steel swept over their heads again. Whether Jackson was conscious of it, Harry never knew. It was one of the most terrible moments of Harry's life. He felt the most overwhelming grief but every nerve, nevertheless, was sensitive to the last degree. His first conviction, that Jackson's wounds were mortal, was in abeyance for the moment. He might yet recover, and lead his dauntless legions as of old to victory, and he, like the other young officers who lay around him, was resolved to save him with his own life if he could. The deadly rain from the cannon did not cease, It swept over their heads again and again, all the more fearful because of the darkness. Harry felt the twigs and leaves, cut from the bushes, falling on his face. The whining of the grape and shrapnel and canister united in one ferocious note. Some of it struck in the roadway beyond them, and fire flew from the stones. The general revived a little after a while, and tried to get up, But one of the young officers threw his arms around him, and holding him down, said, Be still, General. You must. It will cost you your life to rise. The General made no further attempt to rise, and perhaps he lapsed into a stupor for a little space. Harry could not tell how long that dreadful shrieking and whining over their heads continued. It was five minutes, perhaps, but to him it seemed interminable. Presently, "'The missiles gave forth a new note. "'They're using shell now,' said Dalton, "'because they're seeking a longer range, "'and they're going much higher over our heads than the canister. "'And here are men approaching,' said Harry. "'I can make out their figures. They must be our own.' "'So they are,' said Dalton, as they came nearer. "'It was a heavy mass of Confederate infantry "'pressing forward in the darkness, "'and the young officers who had been so ready to give their lives for their hero, lifted him to his feet. Not wishing to have the ardor of his men quenched by the sight of his wounds, Jackson bade them take him aside into the thick bushes. But Pender, the general who was leading these troops, saw him and recognized him, despite the heavy veil of darkness and smoke. Pender rushed to Jackson, betraying the greatest grief, and said that he was afraid he must fall back before the tremendous artillery fire of the enemy. As he spoke, that fire increased. Shells and round shot, grape and canister and shrapnel shrieked through the air, and the bullets, too, were coming in thousands, whistling like hail driven by a hurricane. Men fell all about them in the darkness. But the great soul of Jackson, wounded to death and unable to stand, was unshaken. Harry saw him suddenly straighten up, draw himself away from those who were supporting him, and say, "'You must hold your ground, General Pender. You must hold out to the very last, sir.' Once more the eyes shot forth blue fire. Once more the unquenchable spirit had spoken. The figure reeled, and the young officer sprang to his support. He wanted to lie down there and rest, but the youths would not let him because every form of missile hurled from a cannon's mouth was crashing among them. A litter arrived now, and they carried him toward a house that had been used as a tavern. A shot struck one of the men who held the litter in his arm, and he was compelled to let go. The litter tipped over, and Jackson fell heavily to the ground, his whole weight crashing upon his wounded arm. Harry heard him utter then, his first and only groan, The boy himself cried out in horror. But they lifted him up again, and the litter-bearers carried him on. The young officers crowded close around him. Although it was far on toward midnight, the roar of the battle swelled afresh through the wilderness. They came presently to an ambulance, by the side of which Jackson's physician, Dr. McGuire, stood. The surgeon, tears in his eyes, bent over the general and asked him if he was badly hurt. Jackson replied that he thought he was dying. An officer of high rank, Colonel Crutchfield, whom Jackson esteemed highly, was already lying in the ambulance, wounded severely. They put Jackson beside him and drove slowly toward the rear. Once, when Crutchfield groaned under the jolting of the ambulance, Jackson made them stop until his comrade was easier. Then the mournful procession moved on, while the battle roared and crashed about the lone ambulance that bore the stricken idol of the Confederacy, Lee's right arm, the man without whom the South could not win. Harry heard long afterward that a minister in New Orleans used in his prayer some such words as these, O Lord, when thou in thy infinite wisdom didst decree that the Southern Confederacy should fail, Thou hadst first to take away thy servant, Stonewall Jackson. Harry and Dalton might have followed the ambulance that carried Jackson away, as they were members of his staff, but they felt that their place was on this dusky battlefield. While they paused, not knowing what to do, a body of men came through the brushwood, and they recognized the upright and martial figures of Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire. Just behind them were St. Clair, Langdon, and the rest of the Invincibles. I saw them putting an officer in that ambulance, Harry, said Colonel Talbot. Who was it? Harry choked and made no answer. Colonel Talbot, surprised, turned to Dalton. Who was it? he repeated. Dalton turned his face away and was silent. At sight of this emotion, a sudden terrible suspicion was born in the mind of Colonel Talbot. It was like a dagger thrust. You don't mean... It can't be he exclaimed in broken words. Harry could control his feelings no longer. Yes, Colonel, he burst forth. It was he, Stonewall Jackson, shot down in the darkness and by mistake by our own men. Was he badly hurt? One arm was shattered completely and he was shot through the hand of the other. The moonlight shone on Harry's face just then and the Colonel, as he looked at him, drew in his breath with a deep gasp. "'So bad as that!' he muttered. "'I did not think our champion could fall.' "'Lieutenant-Colonel St. Hilaire, Langdon, and St. Clair, "'who had heard him, also turned pale, but were silent. "'You must not tell it,' said Harry. "'General Jackson did not wish it to be known to the soldiers, "'and there is fighting yet to be done. "'Here comes General Hill.' "'Harry and Dalton flung themselves into the ranks of the Invincibles.' "'Hill took command in Jackson's place, "'but was soon badly wounded by a fragment of shell, "'and was taken away. "'Then Stuart, the great horseman, rode up "'and led the troops to meet the return attack "'for which the northern forces were massing in their front. "'Harry saw Stuart as he came, eager as always for battle, "'his plumed hat shining in the light of the moon, "'which was now clear and at the full. "'If Jackson can lead no longer, then Stuart can,' "'said Colonel Talbot,' "'looking proudly at the gallant knight who feared no danger. "'What time is it, Hector?' "'Nearly midnight, Leonidas. "'And no time for fighting, but fighting will be done. "'Can't you hear their masses gathering in the wood?' "'I do, Hector. "'The Yankees, despite their terrible surprise, have shown great spirit. "'It's not often that routed troops can turn and put on the defense "'those who have routed them.' "'Yes, and they'll be on us in a minute,' said Harry.' It was much lighter now, owing to the clearness of the moon, and the lifting of the smoke caused by a lull in the firing. But Harry was right in his prediction. Within five minutes, the northern artillery, 60 massed guns, opened with a frightful crash. Once more that storm of steel swept through the woods, but now the lack of daylight helped the southerners. Many were killed and wounded, but most of the rain of death passed over their heads, as they were all lying on the ground, awaiting the charge, and the northern gunners, not able to choose any targets, fired in the general direction of the southern force. The cannon fire went on for several minutes, and then, with a mighty shout, the northern force charged, but in a great, confused struggle in the woods and darkness, it was beaten back, and soon after midnight, the battle for the day was done yet there was no rest for the troops. Stuart, appreciating the numbers of his enemy and fearing another attack, moved his forces to the side to close up the gap between himself and Lee in order that the southern army should present a solid line for the new conflict that was sure to come in the morning. All that night the wilderness gave forth the sound of preparations made by either side, and Harry neither slept nor had any thought of it, He knew well that the battle was far from over, and he knew also that the Union Army had not yet been defeated. Hooker's right wing had been crushed by the sudden and tremendous stroke of Jackson, but his center had rallied powerfully on Chancellorsville, and instead of a mere defense, had been able to attack in the night battle. The fall of Jackson, too, had paralyzed for a time the southern advance, and Lee, with the slender forces under his immediate eye, had not been able to make any progress. Harry and Dalton finally left the Invincibles and reported to General Stuart, who instantly recognized Harry. "'Ah,' he said, "'you were on the staff of General Jackson.' "'Yes, sir,' replied Harry, "'and so was Lieutenant Dalton here. "'We report to you for duty.' "'Then you'll be on mine for tonight. "'After that General Lee will dispose of you, "'but I have much for you both to do before morning.'" Stuart was acting with the greatest energy and foresight, manning his artillery and strengthening his whole line. But he knew that it was necessary to inform his commander-in-chief of all that was happening, in order that Lee, in the morning, might have the two portions of the Southern Army in perfect touch and under his complete command. He selected Wilburn to reach him, and Harry was detailed to accompany that gallant officer. They were well fitted to tell all that had happened, as they had been in the thick of the battle and had been present at the fall of Jackson. The two officers, saying but little, rode side by side through the wilderness. They were so much oppressed with grief that they did not have the wish to talk. Both were devotedly attached to Jackson, and to both he was a hero without fear and without reproach. They heard behind them the occasional report of a rifle, but it was only a little picket firing. Most of the soldiers, worn out by such tremendous efforts, lay upon the ground in what was a stupor rather than sleep. As they rode forward, they met pickets of their own men who told them where Lee and his staff were encamped, and they rode on, still in silence, for some time. "'Harry's cheeks were touched by a freshening breeze, "'which had the feel of coming dawn, and he said at last, "'The morning can't be far away, Captain. "'Nope, the first light of sunrise will appear very soon. "'It seems to me that I can see a faint touch of grey now, "'over the eastern forest.' "'They were riding now through the force that had been left by General Lee. "'Soldiers lay all around them, and in all positions, "'most to rise soon for the fresh battle.' AND SOME, AS HARRY COULD TELL BY THEIR RIGIDITY, NEVER TO RISE AT ALL. THEY ASKED AGAIN FOR LEE AS THEY WENT ON, AND THE SENTINEL DIRECTED THEM TO A CLUMP OF PINES. WILBORN AND HARRY DISMOUNTED, AND WALKED TOWARD A NUMBER OF SLEEPING FORMS UNDER THE PINES. THE FIGURES, LIKE THOSE OF THE SOLDIERS, WERE RELAXED AND AS STILL AS DEATH. THE DAWN WHICH HARRY HAD FELT UPON HIS FACE DID NOT APPEAR TO THE EYE. It was very dark under the bows of the pines, and they did not know which of the still forms was Lee. Wilborn asked one of the soldiers on guard for an officer, and Lee's adjutant general came forward. Wilborn told him at once what had occurred, and while they talked briefly, one of the figures under the pines arose. It was that of Lee, who, despite his stillness, was sleeping lightly, and whom the first few words had awakened. He put aside an oilcloth, which someone had put over him to keep off the morning dew, and called, Who is there? Messenger, sir, from General Jackson, replied Major Taylor, the Adjutant General. General Lee pointed to the blankets on which he had been lying, and said, Sit down here and tell me everything that has occurred last evening. Wilborn sat down on the blankets. Harry stood back a little. The other staff officers, aroused by the talk, sat up, but waited in silence. Captain Wilborn began the story of the night, and Lee did not interrupt him. But the first rays of the dawn were now stealing through the pines, and when Wilborn came to the account of Jackson's fall, Harry saw the great leader's face pale a little. Lee, like Jackson, was a man who invariably had himself under complete command, one who seldom showed emotion, But now, as Wilborn finished, he exclaimed with deep emotion, "'Ah, Captain Wilborn, we've won a victory, but it is dearly bought, "'when it deprives us of the services of General Jackson, even for a short time.' Harry inferred from what he said that he did not think General Jackson's wounds serious, and he wished that he could have the same hope and belief, but he could not. He had felt the truth from the first, that Jackson's wounds were mortal.' Then Lee was silent so long that Captain Wilburn rose as if to go. Lee came out of his deep thought, and bade Wilburn stay a little longer. Then he asked him many questions about the troops and their positions. He also gave him orders to carry to Stuart, and as Wilburn turned to go, he said with great energy, "'Those people must be pressed this morning!' Then Wilburn and Harry rode away at the utmost speed, "'guiding their horses skillfully through lines of soldiers yet sleeping. "'The freshening touch of dawn grew stronger on Harry's cheeks, "'and he saw the band of grey in the east broadening. "'Presently they reached their own corps, "'and now they saw all the troops ready and eager. "'Harry rode at once with Wilborn to Stuart, "'and fell in behind that singular but able general. "'Harry saw that Stuart's face was flushed with excitement.' His eyes fairly blazed. It had fallen to him to lead the great fighting corps, which had been led so long by Stonewall Jackson, and it was enough to appeal to the pride of any general. Nor had he shed any of the brilliant plumage that he loved so well. The great plume in his gold-corded hat lifted and fluttered in the wind as he galloped about. The broad sash of yellow silk still encircled his waist, "'and on his heels were large golden spurs. "'Harry, as he followed him, heard him singing to himself, "'Old Joe Hooker, won't you come out of the wilderness?' "'That line seemed to have taken possession of Stuart's mind. "'All the staff and many of the soldiers along the battlefront "'noted the difference between their new commander "'and the one who had fallen so disastrously in the night. "'There was never anything spectacular about Jackson.' In the soberest of uniforms, save once or twice, he would ride along the battlefront on his little sorrel horse, making no gestures. It was not until the soldiers saw Stuart in the light that they knew of Jackson's fall. Then the news spread among them with astonishing rapidity, and while they liked Stuart, their hearts were with the great leader who lay wounded behind them. But eagerness for revenge added to their warlike zeal. Along the reformed lines ran a tremendous swelling cry, "'Remember Jackson!' They wheeled a little further to the right, in order to come into close contact with Lee, and then, as the first red touch of the dawn showed in the wilderness, the trumpets sounded the charge. The batteries blazed as they sent forth crashing volleys, and in a minute the thunder of guns came from the east and south, were Lee also attacked as soon as he heard the sounds of his lieutenant's charge. Nothing could withstand the terrible onset of the troops who were still shouting, "'Remember Jackson!' and who were led on by a plumed knight out of the Middle Ages, shaking a great saber, and now singing at the top of his voice his favorite line, "'Old Joe Hooker, won't you come out of the wilderness?' They swept away the skirmishers and seized the plateau of Hazel Grove, which had been of such use to Hooker the night before, and the southern batteries, planted in strength upon it, rained death on the northern ranks. The veterans with Lee rushed forward with equal courage and fire, and from every point of the great curve, cannon and rifles thundered on the Union ranks. Harry and Dalton stayed as closely as they could with their new chief, who, reckless of the death which in truth he seemed to invite, was galloping in the very front ranks, still brandishing his great saber, and now and then making it whirl in a coil of light about his head. He continually shouted encouragement to his men, who were already full of fiery zeal, but it was the spirit of Jackson that urged them most. It seemed to Harry, excited and worshipping his hero, that the figure of Jackson, misty and almost impalpable, still rode before him. But it was no mere triumphal march. They met stern and desperate resistance. It was American against American. Once more, the superb northern batteries met those of the south with a fire as terrible as their own. The Union gunners willingly exposed themselves to death to save their army, and from their breastworks, 60,000 riflemen sent vast sheets of bullets. But the northern leader was gone. As Hooker leaned against a pillar in the portico of the Chancellor House, a shell struck it over his head, the concussion being so violent that he was thrown to the floor, stunned and severely injured. He was carried away, unconscious, but the brave and able generals under him still sustained the battle and had no thought of yielding. The Southern Army, Lee and Stuart in unison, never ceased to push the attack. The forces were now drawing closer together. The lines were shorter and deeper. The concentrated fire on both sides was appalling. Bushes and saplings fell in the wilderness as if they had been leveled with mighty axes. Harry saw a vast bank of fire and smoke, and then he saw, shooting above it, pyramids and spires of flame. The Chancellor House and all the buildings near it, set on fire by the flames, were burning fiercely, springing up like torches, to cast a lurid light over that scene of death and destruction. Then the woods, despite their spring sap and greenness, caught fire under the showers of exploding shells, and their flames spread along a broad front. The defense made by the Union army was long and desperate. No men could have shown greater valor, but they had been surprised, and from the first they had been out An important division of Hooker's army had not been able to get into the main battle. The genius of Lee gathered all his men at the point of contact, and the invisible figure of Jackson still rode at the head of his men. For five hours the battle raged, and at last the repeated charges of the southern troops and the deadly fire of their artillery prevailed. The Northern Army, its breastworks carried by storm, was driven out of Chancellorsville, and, defeated but not routed, began its slow and sullen retreat. Thirty thousand men, killed or wounded, attested the courage and endurance with which the two sides had fought. The Army of the Potomac, defeated but defiant, and never crushed by defeat, continued its slow retreat to Fredericksburg, and for a little space, THE GUNS WERE SILENT IN THE WILDERNESS. THE MEN OF HOOKER, ALTHOUGH SURPRISED AND OUT-GENERALED, HAD SHOWN GREAT COURAGE IN BATTLE, AND AFTER THE DEFEAT OF CHANCELLORSVILLE, THE RETREAT WAS CONDUCTED WITH MUCH SKILL. LEE HAD BEEN INTENDING TO PUSH ANOTHER ATTACK, BUT, AS USUAL AFTER THE GREAT BATTLES OF THE CIVIL WAR, CHANCELLORSVILLE WAS FOLLOWED BY A TERRIFIC STORM. IT BURST OVER THE WILDERNESS IN VIOLENCE AND FURY. The thunder was so loud, and the lightning so vivid, that it seemed for a while as if another mighty combat were raging. Then the rain came in a deluge, and the hoofs of the horses and the wheels of cannon sank so deep in the spongy soil of the wilderness that it became practically impossible to move the army. After a night of storm, Harry and Dalton rode forward with Sherburne and his troop of cavalry, "'sent by Stuart to beat up the enemy "'and see what he was doing. "'They found that Hooker's whole army "'had crossed the river in the night on his bridges. "'Twice the northern army had been driven back "'across the Rappahannock at the same place, "'after Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, "'but Harry felt no elation "'as he returned slowly through the mud with Sherburne. "'If it were in my power,' he said, "'I'd gladly trade the victory of Chancellorsville.' and more like it, to have our general back. By our general, he of course meant Jackson, and both Sherburne and Dalton nodded assent. The news had come to them that Jackson was not doing well. His shattered arm had been amputated near the shoulder, and the report spread through the army that he was sinking. Just after the victory, Lee, with his wanted greatness of soul, had sent him a note that it was chiefly due to him, jackson although in great pain had sent back word that general lee was very kind but he should give the praise to god the deep religious feeling was no affectation with him it showed alike in victory and suffering it was a part of the man's being bred into every fiber of his bone and flesh as soon as the news of hooker's escape across the rappahannock had been told Harry and Dalton, asked leave of Stuart to visit General Jackson. It was given at once. Stuart added, moreover, that he had merely taken them on his staff while the battle lasted. They were now to return to their own chief. But his heart warmed to them both, and he said to them that if they happened to need a friend, to come to him. They thanked Stuart and rode away, two very sober youths indeed. Both were appalled by the vast slaughter of Chancellorsville. Harry began to have a feeling that their victories were useless. After every triumph, the enemy was more numerous and powerful than ever, and the cloud of Jackson's condition hung heavy over both. When he was first struck down in the wilderness, Harry had felt no hope for him, and now that premonition was coming true. They learned that he was in the Chandler House, at a little place called Guiney Station, and they rode briskly toward it. They passed many troops in camp, resting after their tremendous exertions, many of whom knew them to be officers of Jackson's staff. They were besieged by these. The young soldiers fairly clung to their horses and demanded news of Jackson, who, they had heard, was dying. Harry and Dalton Returned replies as hopeful as they could make them, but their faces belied their word. Gloom hung over the southern army, which had just won its most brilliant victory. Harry and Dalton found the same gloom at the Chandler house. The officers who were there welcomed them in subdued tones, and in the house everybody moved silently. The general's wife and little daughter had just arrived from Richmond, and they were with him but after a while the two young lieutenants were admitted. Jackson spoke a few words to both as they bent beside his bed and commended them as brave soldiers. Harry knew now, when he looked at the thin face and the figure scarcely able to move, that the great Jackson was going. They went out oppressed by grief and sought the invincibles whom they at last found encamped in an old orchard. "'Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire "'sat beneath an apple tree, and the chessboard was between them. "'They've been sitting there for an hour,' whispered Langdon, "'but they haven't made a single move, "'nor will they make one if they stay there all day. "'It's in my mind that neither of them sees the chessmen. "'Instead, they see the general. "'They visited him this morning.' "'Harry did not speak to the two colonels, but turned away.' We found the body of Bertrand yesterday, said Langdon, and buried it just where he fell. I'm glad of that, said Harry. Harry and Dalton lingered at the Chandler house with the staff to which they belonged. Three days passed, and Sunday came. Jackson was sinking all the while, and that morning the doctor informed his wife that he was about to die. Pneumonia had followed the weakness from his wounds, and his breathing had grown very faint. Mrs. Jackson herself told him that all hope for him was gone, and he heard the words with resignation. After a while, as Harry learned, his mind began to wander. He spoke in disjointed sentences of the army, of his battles, of his boyhood, and of his friends. This lasted into the afternoon, when he sank into unconsciousness. Then came his death, and it was much like that of Napoleon— he awoke suddenly from a deep stupor and cried out in a clear voice, "'Order A.P. Hill to prepare for action! Pass the infantry to the front! Tell Major Hux!' He stopped, seemed to sink into a stupor again, but a little later, roused suddenly from it once more, and said in the same clear voice, "'Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees!' Then, as his eyes closed, the soul of the great Christian soldier passed into the fathomless beyond to sit in peace with Cromwell and Washington, and in time with Lee and Grant and Thomas, who were yet to come. That night a whole army wept.